Hey guys, welcome back to Teen Muscle Radio and episode number 25. So today we are very, very lucky to be joined by, as you can see, Jeff Nippard. And there's been a lot of excitement for this episode. I, I posted a, a little preview and asking for any sort of questions uh, in a group that I run. And there was a lot of excitement, like a lot of people love you, Jeff. <laughs> a lot of people follow you. So um, really, really is a pleasure to have you on. And obviously, thanks to the listeners for, for coming back for another episode. Um, but how are you, Jeff? Are you <clears> good? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate all the love. <laughs> no worries. No worries. You deserve it. You've been. We'll make sure it's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've been you've been putting in the grind recently, and obviously your growth, your growth recently on social media has been outstanding. So, really impressive, and and you know, like I said, a pleasure to have you on. So uh, today we are going to be discussing primarily muscle gain. Now, obviously, we've had previous guests on the podcast talk about muscle gain but I think what's really special about Jeff and probably if you followed him you will know this is that Jeff's really clued up he's really smart when it comes to the science and he's he's also got what I like in the fact that he's also extremely jacked as well he's got the physique to boot like he 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 really has you know developed his physique over the years he's also a WMBF pro so I think it really does validate this episode and having Jeff on. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people were looking forward to it. So, Jeff, I'd really like to start with giving the listeners a little bit of context and background as to your, I guess, your experiences through muscle gain phases. So if you could just take us back to sort of maybe the, the initial phases of, of you first delving into muscle gain, what, what it looked like, and then obviously how that evolved over time. Sure. Um, so do you want me to go back through my whole training history? I can do it super quick because some people might be quick. familiar with it. Yeah, um, so I, I initially was a martial artist. So I was trained in Taekwondo as a black belt, uh, got involved in basketball after that. Okay. Um, and most of my training was set towards improving my vertical leap. So I did a lot of plyometric training and athletic style training set towards my basketball related goals, namely being able to dunk at five, five, which I was never quite able to do, but I could get my full palm over the rim. So, Uh um, I managed to work up to about a 40 inch running vertical, um, at the time. Um, from there, I sort of transitioned into resistance training again, mostly, uh, from an athletic perspective. Uh, so a, a lot of athletic type movements. Um, Later realized that basketball wasn't necessarily in line with my genetic endowments. Uh, I was more so built as a bodybuilder than a basketball player. Um, So I decided to restructure my training in a way that was more in line with my bodybuilding goals. Uh, So I started doing a bro split where I'd hit a given body part or a couple body parts every day. And I ran with that for a few years. Uh, That built me a good chunk of size uh, in my my newbie period. And then I did my first competition when I was 19. Uh, So after about four years of actual training. Um, And then from there, uh, I compete. So I won the provincial title in Newfoundland, Canada uh, as a junior and my weight class. Then I went on to win it again. And then I went on to win the Canadian title. Uh, So I won the title of Mr. Junior Natural Canada. So in the drug-tested stream in Canada, I won the national title for for bodybuilding uh, in 2012. Um, And then from there, I I earned my pro card in California in the WMBF, as you said, uh, in 2015. And I've done one pro show since then. Um, It was sometime between 2010 and 2012 that I started to mesh together my academic experience with my training experience. So uh, I sought out the help of Lane Norton and familiarized myself with guys like Alberto Nunez, Alan Aragon, and these sorts of names and started to educate myself on a way to train in diet that was more science-based. And uh, I felt like that was in some degree responsible for uh, taking my physique, I guess, uh, to the next level, or at least doing it in a way that was more congruent with my education and my belief system as a scientist and also more in line with a healthier lifestyle or at least a, a, a social lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. That's an awesome background and I think that your 
your physique has you know drastically changed over the years obviously from from pictures that people will see on instagram and i think that i think it's highly motivating as a younger trainee to see that obviously as a natural it's your potential is there to get much much bigger than you were when you started but one of the questions i had just a the last question on your sort of your rookie years was mm. when do you really think that you built the majority of your tissue and what was your training like and why do you think that it was so successful at that period in time? That's a good question. Um, I, I don't recall there being a period of time where I went from uh, looking really, say, skinny to looking really muscular. Like there wasn't like one year that I really blew up, even my first few years. And I think it's because I was so involved in athletics that I was at best at caloric maintenance or slight surplus. So I probably wasn't really eating enough in my initial training phases to gain as much size as I could have. I probably left some gains on the table in, in that period. Um, I would say that the best gains I got were between 2010 and 2012, which like I said was around the time that I started uh, training in more of a science-based way. And it was also a period of time that I took off from competing. So I dieted 09 again the next year. Then I took a full year off season. So 2011, I didn't, I was in a surplus the whole time, no mini cuts or anything. Okay. Then, then 2012 I prepped and then I competed again mid 2012. So having that roughly year and a half to just grow made a big difference in spite of the fact that it was, I don't know, six years deep into my training career. Yeah, no, yeah. that makes sense. I think, I think a lot of the time and a lot of the people I've spoken to in the past obviously say that the investment in the physique is so integral and mm. i can totally relate to you on that front i think that the the changes that i've made in in a year off season has been dramatic comparative mm -hmm. to the gains that i saw taking a smaller off season between you know six months well you know five months in a surplus and then competing again the next year yeah the, the the gains are almost coming primarily from how you retain muscle in the next diet as opposed to putting on slabs of tissue that you would do you know in that 12 mm. 15 month gaining phase so yeah interesting and i think that a lot of a lot of viewers again will take home from that that you know the investment side of things is, is super important yeah so when it comes to setting up training for for muscle gain jeff and i know that you obviously you work with clients as well on this so i think the majority well i know the majority of of our listeners are primarily intermediate trainees so when it comes to setting up um, the split for an intermediate trainee what would you what would you favor and also what would you what would you need to know from this person in terms of maximizing the the split or the route that you choose in terms of obviously frequency and mm. in terms of yeah, the training split itself uh yeah good question i think it it would as you alluded to really depend on the individual and if we're coming at this from a bodybuilding perspective which i think we are yeah, rather than yeah, a power yeah, yeah, one um yeah, so if it's someone who really is is say, primarily focused on hypertrophy, maybe they care a little bit about strength, which is most people, um, uh -huh. then I think that you really want to look at, insofar as the split is concerned, what do you need to improve on to make yourself look as proportional and jacked as you can? Um, so I think that specialization is, is really important and specificity is, is really important. So if someone has a lagging body part like a upper chest, for example, then you would want to set up your training in such a way that would prioritize that weak point. I think that that really is ultimately the goal of bodybuilding is to have a physique that's symmetrical, proportional, and well-developed, and then in the later stages, conditioned or lean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, in terms of actually setting it up, there's so many different ways that you can do it. But I think that for an intermediate, something that tends to work for most people would be a push-pull legs split. Um, so you would train push, so chest and triceps and shoulders, uh, pull back and biceps, traps, um, and legs. And then you would either take a rest day or just repeat the cycle and then take a rest day. Yeah. Um, I think that with increasing advancement, uh, it might be more important to undulate a little bit during that week. So whereas with more, 
yeah, with the rep range. So with a beginner, you might be able to get away with doing the exact same workout um, in the, both of those little micro cycles. Uh, with a more advanced athlete, you might want to do, say, like a heavy session earlier in the week and then a lighter, more pump-focused section, session later in the week. Um, but there's like a million ways that you can do it, and there are a ton of variations on that split or other splits that would work. Um, you mentioned frequency. Uh, I think that the majority of the scientific research seems to indicate that training each body part two times a week is better than once a week. Um, so I would recommend setting up your split in a way that would allow you to hit each body part twice a week at least. Um, it's mm -hmm. not perfectly clear whether frequencies higher than that are better or worse. Um, so it's not that higher frequencies can't work. Uh, I just find that it tends to be personally a little bit less of an enjoyable way to train, but a lot of people seem to enjoy full body training um, or upper lower training or what have you that would allow for greater frequencies. And then that's also not to say that lower frequencies don't work or can't work. Uh, they've yeah. certainly been shown to be effective in the literature and in the field. If you look at the, a lot of the top natural bodybuilders, they employ one time per week training programs and they seem to work just fine. So uh, it's, I think, unwise to be dogmatic about it one way or another, but recognize yeah. that all of these things can work. It's simply a function of whether you're looking for what is theoretically most optimal um, or what may or may not give you that little bit of edge. Uh, if you're someone who likes to analyze like me, then I think that you you tend to put a little bit more weight in things that might make that little bit of difference and try to figure out what is going to do that. So, yeah. yeah. For sure. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I think when it comes to obviously the frequency side of things, I can sort of agree with you when it, in, in the idea of the very, very high frequency splits getting a little bit boring when it comes to the session itself. I'll look at it on paper and I'll think, you know, that's, 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 you know, I'm not really focusing on certain areas and I think the session mm -hmm. can sometimes drag on quite long as well. And that, that's something yeah. that kind of puts you off. But for, for the majority, like especially if you're talking about like a very, very new trainee, obviously higher frequencies can, can really pay off in getting them just to do movements on a, on a regular basis. I also had a question. You touched on weak body parts and specialization. Mm -hmm. When it comes to weak body parts, what do you tend to see on most physiques that are, that are sort of regular weak points? And how would you go about targeting these in a, in a specialization block? How would you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I would say the common culprits are, especially in young guys, uh, legs generally tend okay. to get skipped more than they should, but I think that hamstrings especially yeah, no, uh, are, are an issue. Uh, I think that rear delts uh, tend to lag behind side and front delts, and upper chest tends to lag yeah, uh, behind mid and lower. Um, though just from my experience, sometimes guys will neglect their back, but let's say we're addressing a population who's pretty serious about their, their physique goals. So they're not just your average gym bro who like only trains the mirror muscles kind of thing. Sure. Um, in that case, I would say focus on hamstring rear delt and upper chest development for most guys. Um, and then the way to do that one way to do it. And I think probably the simplest way as a quick fix would be to see if you can feel the muscles working when you're doing the exercises you're already doing. Um, so let's just take hamstrings as the first example. Uh, a lot of people with Romanian deadlifts will load it too heavily to the point that their lower back really ends up taking over and they no longer feel any sort of stretch or contraction in their hamstrings. And it's very true that um, just because you're moving a certain load, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're activating the muscle that you want to activate to a large degree. So I put quite a lot of stock in mind-muscle connection with okay. weak body parts. And I found it to be the case that a lot of people who are struggling to develop a given body part uh, do struggle with establishing a mind-muscle connection. So I don't think that that's a coincidence. Um, with rear delts, uh, again, I feel like a lot of people will use their traps um, when doing uh, uh, transverse extension. And so one thing, motion, right? yeah. one thing that I've found to help a lot is let's say you're just doing, um, bent over or reverse flies. Uh -huh. Think about 
pushing your palm, like the back of the palm of your hands, so like the back of your hand. Think about pushing it out rather than thinking about flying up. So like if you're thinking about flying up, I find like people are more likely to squeeze their shoulder blades together and get their traps involved. Uh -huh. If they're thinking about pushing out, they're more likely to use their rear delt and like you can feel it come on big time. So you need to think about those little cues that you can use internally to help activate the muscle that you're wanting to build. Third weak point that I find is pretty common is upper chest, at least relative to mid and lower. So um, I would say to include some inclines, close grip presses, uh, use bands, chains, uh, accommodating resistance, that sort of thing has been shown to lead to increased upper pec activation. And then also just playing with your grip position to find an angle that works best for you so you can feel your upper chest working. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I think when it comes to mind-muscle connection, that's something that I guess sometimes people lose along the journey. So they'll get into training and perhaps they'll follow things like Flex Magazine or the more bodybuilding side of things. And then they'll find people that obviously log their training, they log their sessions, they're very focused on progressive overload. And I think the whole mind-muscle connection has maybe taken a back seat just a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree, but I think it is super important that People are doing movements where they actually feel the muscle that trying to work rather than just simply overloading with weights like they're progressing their lifts, but they get to a point where they're no longer feeling a bench press in their chest because they're banging mm -hmm. it off their chest and you know, same with the RDL, etc. So I think you can get quite, you know, clued up in the numbers and forget to actually feel the movements themselves. So that's a really, really good thing. And obviously that leads on to as well with with the form and the actual stimulus of the movement, I think again people get lost in adding weight, to, adding weight to the bar, and then forgetting that the form should be the same throughout. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I know uh, Nunes uses the term like timeless form. There's something you should re be repeating on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, my next question really is surrounding um i guess periodizing your training so when you when you set up people's training for you know like a however however long you set a, a training block for um what would that generally look like and would you with an intermediate trainee would you look to increase volume through adding sets to workouts or would you let you know, the volume add up itself by people just get simply getting stronger and adding more weight to the bar. And what do you think are the benefits of either adding volume like by adding sets or by letting people slowly increase it and then obviously deloading? What's your opinions right. on that? Good question. Um, first thing I want to like quickly just circle back around to is the mind muscle connection thing. Um, I think that I think that the case can be made from both both sides actually. I think um, if you're doing a barbell squat and you're trying to get, you know, get stronger with your squat, it would be smarter to focus on external cues. So big, broad, uh, full body cues, yeah. like keep your, you know, chest up or back into the bar or, you know, keep your knees out in the direction of your toes, these sorts of things, rather than thinking about like activating your quads or something like that. Um, when it comes to more isolation, single joint type movements, I absolutely think it's really important. And it can be important for those exercises too. It just depends on what you're trying to do. If you're just trying to get stronger, focusing internally might not be the smartest way to do that. Um, if you're trying to say activate your glutes in a sumo deadlift, you can absolutely do that to a greater degree by constantly, you know, squeezing them or posteriorly tilting at the top, that kind of thing, right? Um, so it's, it's, again, it's not that it's not necessarily that people get caught up in the numbers and uh, forget about a mind-muscle connection because sometimes that might be the best thing to do. It kind of depends on where yeah. people are in their training block and in the, within the context of their whole routine and goals and so on. But um, I, I understand that we're on the same page with that one, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, the next thing about volume. So I I have gotten. I think increasingly less like less um, enthralled with volume being a main driver of anything really. Okay. Um, I think that the case can certainly be made that volume is the main driver of hypertrophy, but as far as I'm concerned, it's still relatively controversial uh, within the community. There's at least pushback from other researchers who might be less known. Um, Fisher and Steele, as one example, have published comprehensive reviews on hypertrophy and their conclusions are more in line with the idea that 
the volume is not that important, and provided that sets are taken to momentary muscular failure, or at least within a certain threshold of intensity, so pretty close to failure, uh-huh. um, then that is perhaps more important than the number of sets that you do. Um, of course, Schoenfeld and others recently released their, their meta-analysis on training volume, and they found a pretty strong effect towards uh, dose, they even claim dose response relationship between training volume and hypertrophy. Uh, so it does, they do seem to be in a strong relationship with one another. But I think that it plays into the picture along with intensity, perhaps more than is given credit for. Uh, so lately, especially, I've been putting a lot more emphasis on intensity of effort, especially how hard are you pushing yourself in the sets that you do do, rather than the number of sets that you do. And I think that it comes down to the debate between people who are volume advocates and say that you should leave you know, a few reps in the tanks for the sake of increasing the total volume of the workout. Otherwise, your subsequent performance is going to be inhibited if you go to failure too early. Or maybe that's putting it in the wrong direction. Maybe you should you know, push yourself early when you're strong and able to you know, be fresh and so on and get that intensity, give that priority. And then if you need to make up the volume later with, say, a, a drop set or a set with a little less intensity, then do that then. Sure. Um, I'm not sure I'm perfectly comfortable putting one of those variables ahead of the other Mm -hmm. if there's anything that I'm quite convinced drives hypertrophy it's progressive overload which isn't synonymous with increases in volume right so you can progressively overload in a ton of different ways you could simply slow down the cadence of the movement or control it a little bit better and that would be a form of overload even if the sets or rep count didn't or load or nothing increased right Um, so there are lots of ways to progress in that way not just with volume Um, and then of course, the other big thing that I'm confident drives hypertrophy is our genetic factors, and those are enormous. Uh, and so I just wanted to bracket the ensuing conversation it, within that context because I think that a lot of people really put volume on a pedestal that I'm not convinced it deserves to be on. Um, so to answer your question, I, I do still think it's a good idea. I think that all else being equal, more is better uh, when it comes to, to training. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I do try to do that. Um, I generally will tell my clients that as long as they're increasing the weight uh, or adding a rep throughout the course of the training block, then I'm happy. Um, I will also often build in set increases. So um, usually like every couple of weeks, I'll either every two weeks or every four weeks, say they're running an eight week block, I'll add in, say, one set per exercise to test and see if they're, you know, still able to recover, see how they're, I'd also track RPE with most clients. So see if their RPEs for given exercises are changing, or they're getting too high, Mm -hmm. that might indicate that the volume is a little bit too high, in which case I'll reduce it. Uh But generally, I like to push the set volume just because I'm generally of the opinion that if you can do more and you have the time to do more and you want to do more and you want to get as much results as you can, then it makes sense to do more set volume. Uh, So I I generally will titrate that in sort of thing throughout the training block. Uh, But I also encourage progressive overload in the form of increasing load and adding reps when possible. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Obviously, that protrudes to one of my further questions when it comes to what were your opinions on people simply sometimes not training hard enough and focusing too much on just adding load to the bar and I've what I've seen you know potentially with maybe I guess some programming approaches people will start at such a low intensity that they make great progress but they've only made great progress because they've started with the a very low intensity <laughs> yeah like, exactly. oh, PR 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 but yeah reality They've only just got to a potential where they, they should actually be working that hard in the first place. Agreed? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. At week eight, they could have done their week eight PR in week one and yeah. gotten on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I totally see that. And um, I, I, it's definitely a trend I don't approve of. And I'm not convinced that it's very effective for progress. So uh, I think that just in general, people who are more successful at anything, uh, any sport, tend to be the ones who can push themselves. Um, that doesn't mean you always have to go balls to the wall, but I think that a lot of people would stand to benefit from learning where that line is, you know, flirting with that line a little bit more, like, you know, pushing yourself too hard, see what happens. Uh, I think that overtraining is a concern that's blown out of proportion big time. I think a lot of people would benefit from just training harder. And uh, I think a lot of people, as much as I respect 
analyzation and scientific literature and everything, I feel like a lot of people would do well to just simplify their training and train hard and see what results they can get from it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of merit in that. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I'm on the side of that. However, I must admit that I've probably been on the other side too frequently as well. So mm-hmm. I'll be like, well, as long as you're, as long as you're making progress, that's fine. And then you get, I get a video from a client on a leg press with their hardest set and it'd be, you know, nowhere near the intensity that they need to be at. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I agree with you with the, with the trend side of things is that having spoken to a few people that are, you know, at the top of their game, I've, there is some trends in the way that they do simply just train very hard and Mm -hmm. on a consistent basis. And so that sort of leads very nicely into my next question, Jeff, which is when we're training hard, obviously we will naturally accumulate fatigue and lifts will some point potentially stall or even regress. Now, what would be your approach when you see this happening either with yourself or a client? I've, I've been aware of obviously people having different approaches to this. Some people will say time off the gym. Some people will say deload. Obviously, um, potentially the literature will suggest that deloading is potentially the best way. Um, Mm -hmm. Alongside that, exercise rotation, etc. So what would be your approach to a stalling lift or stalling lifts um, and and why? Uh, Okay, so if if you're at a stall, I think... um... You have to ask yourself, um, you need to figure out how, if it's a recovery issue or something else. So, uh, basically, yeah. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, if, if you're recovering, if you're stalled and you're recovering adequately from your training or you feel like you're recovering adequately from your training, then you probably need to do more. Right. Um, and I feel like this could be the case in, in, in some cases as well. If you're, stalled from your training and you feel beat up and you're sore and you know you can generally tell when you're not recovering well right you feel like shit you're you know not recovering between sessions um then you probably need to do less uh and so in my experience the best way to do that is through a deload um so you would reduce the both the volume and the intensity um and you can knock that down. If you're running like a hybrid powerlifting bodybuilding program, knock down the percent 1RM by you know, 10%, something like that. Um, knock down the RPE a couple notches and then slash off a set and you're good uh, for each exercise. And that will generally fix people up pretty well mm-hmm. uh, after a week if it's just a little bit of overreaching. Um, if there's an injury in place, I think it's probably smarter to just don't do anything that is going to potentially aggravate that until it's recovered and then get back into it. So that's when I would take the full training break. But I think that most bodybuilders who don't also do powerlifting don't really need a full week break, uh, especially if they enjoy training. Like for me to take a week off training would would mm-hmm. suck. I would hate that. It would make the rest of my life so much worse. So yeah. I don't think that it's necessary. But at the same time, it's certainly not going to hurt. It takes a whole lot longer than a week to actually lose any muscle. So there theoretically could be some benefit to taking the full week off, but I don't think it would be enough to justify the stir craziness you might see as a result. Yeah, makes sense, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think something that I've I've learned myself is that you a lot of the time you understand how it feels to need time away, whether that's like a deload or an extra day in between sessions. You just get a gauge over it over time. Yeah. And obviously you're super experienced um, in my opinion as a trainee. I think that, you know, would you agree that over time you just get better at auto regulating when you deload, yeah. etc.? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um it really depends on what you're doing, but I feel like personally, um I don't feel the need to deload all that frequently. Um I'm not running any powerlifting programming right now so it's i find relatively easy to recover from so i don't think you need to deload just because you're feeling sore or something like that you know like you don't like just you know keep pushing yourself see 
you know, let's see what your limit is first. And then, you know, then you can throw in a deload. But I don't think that they need to be set in stone as to when they happen. Um, When you're powerlifting, it's a little bit it's a little bit different because those lifts are more taxing centrally and they tend to accumulate fatigue more. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that actually, again, leads on quite nicely to a question that I had when it comes to, obviously, you're a little bit ahead of where most people are when it comes to the listeners that um, listen to the podcast in terms of training age. So when it comes to specific movements, what would you say has been somewhat harder to progress over time? So, you know, the certain lifts will be really easy to progress and you won't have to look at potentially other options or accessory movements over time. And this is primarily focused on bodybuilding. So mm. like, obviously compound lifts, etc. But what do you find usually with people is some of the lifts that maybe take longer to progress and why? Uh, for me personally, uh, I, I guess like in terms of power lifts or just body parts? Hmm. Powerlifts, more powerlifts. Okay, for, yeah, yeah. for me, my deadlift sucks because I have really short arms, which is part of the reason why my bench is so good. Sure, sure, uh, sure. You, you usually don't see guys with both. Um, but my deadlift, yeah, it's just anthropometry in that case. So there's not a whole lot I can do other than you know train my deadlift more. Um, but with an injury, it's a little difficult for me to do that. Um, and other than that, it's just, it's so individual. I don't know if I've noticed any trends with things other than those muscles that people tend to have a difficult time establishing a mind muscle connection with. Uh, some people aren't able to connect with their glutes or, uh, you know, we've already talked about the hamstrings, rear delts and upper chest. I feel like those are pretty, pretty common. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, I think what about, what about females at all? Have you noticed any trends with, like pushing movements at all with females and them being slower to progress? Yeah, uh, it depends on if they have an athletic background or not. I feel I find females with an athletic background generally tend to be better with upper body movements and just knowing how to push themselves generally. I find that a lot of females, especially new females, um, put a lot of emphasis on form to the point that it impedes their ability to train as hard as they would need to. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like their little muscles give out before the big ones even start to take a, a bit of a hit, like in rowing movements, for example. Yeah, it's no. like they're so focused on being like upright and perfect with the cadence and everything. It's like just get into it and start yeah. like pushing yourself a little bit, you know. Um, so yeah, just to rip on the females a little bit, that's probably the the main fault that I see there, and just general awkwardness, like in pressing movements, like you said. It's just those stabilization muscles are just not used. To to being used uh but newbies in general are like that yeah Uh, sure yeah yeah but i don't know calves a lot of people struggle with calf development um that's a pretty standardly stubborn muscle for both genders i think yeah 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 Yeah. unless yeah unless you're gifted like yourself which exactly giant calves yeah i think (laughs) i think a lot of people are probably jealous of of that jeff (laughs) <laughs> yeah i don't i don't train them i had to i had to make up a science video on that one and make it look like i trained them i was sore for a week after it <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant now the secret's out um, right. when it comes to and i've spoken to various people when it, regarding this topic and had several different opinions so i'm interested to know what you think when it comes to taking in a physical logbook into your sessions, writing everything down, doing logging every set and giving yourself lots of data to work with, what do you see the importance of this? And is it something that you've done all your training career? And uh, have you had phases of using it, not using it, etc.? Mm-hmm. I y- used to do it quite religiously. I track all my weights for every exercise, like leg extensions, just like everything. Everything. Um, and I did that for a while. Um, I kind of see it like, uh, I see tracking macros at this point. Um, it's useful as a tool to know what you're, uh, like what direction you're headed in. But after a while, I feel like I can keep kind of a mental catalog of it and sort of intuit where I am, um, just internally. Uh, so, I don't do it personally now. I don't. I don't track uh, anything in the gym, but I will keep a mental catalog of what I'm doing. So, for example, on the T-bar row, I'll know that I'm up to three plates 
um, for eight to 10 reps. And I'll try to slowly increase that over time or with wide grip pull-ups, I've topped out the top end of my 15 to 20 rep range. So now I need to start loading it a little bit for 15 reps, which is exciting to me because that's progress. Um, I don't need to write down body weight X 18, body weight X 18 yeah. to know how many reps I'm doing week to week. I can kind of keep track of it at this point. Um, and so I also, like you kind of mentioned, have been really focusing on the business side of things. So I've been filming a lot of my workouts or I'll document them on social media. I've been Snapchatting a lot of my workouts and that takes time, uh, like a lot of time. Like sometimes it'll add an extra hour to the workout just to set up the camera, get the right angles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so then also going over and documenting it, it's just another stressor for me, honestly, that I feel like it doesn't actually contribute meaningfully to my results, so I just don't do it. Um, But that isn't to say that as a beginner or even an intermediate, it isn't a good idea. I think it is because people do forget like what it was they did the week before, and um, it you might it might just be a fast ticket to stagnation, honestly, um, unless you really have a handle on it. And keep in mind, I've been training for over 11 years. So I have a pretty good idea of what my body is capable of. And I usually have a really good idea of what I did the week before. So um, I can get away with not doing it. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. I think as a younger trainee, it's very beneficial because a lot of people will walk into sessions with not so much of an idea as to what they're doing on that given day. I think for me, it gives real clarity as to what I want to do in that session. So Mm -hmm. Again, it can be it can be a negative because, like you said, you've got the stress of obviously, and it's worked really well because you've grown your socials incredibly. You've got the stress of filming, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and adding the stress of thinking, "Oh crap! If I don't if I don't beat this on exactly. this day, like that's a bad workout." I think I think a lot of people can benefit and at least this is what probably I did when I initially got into the gym was just I'd go into sessions with an idea of what I was going to be doing and I'd just train hard and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that I was taking like you said obviously the research suggests that taking things pretty close to failure is going to be fairly optimal when it comes to hypertrophy and I was doing that you know I was doing that on a regular basis and I didn't have to remind myself with a logbook to be able to do that and you don't you don't need a logbook to be able to train hard um, but nevertheless, like I said, like you said as well, and the benefits in my eyes with when it comes to clarity and vision of a session, and obviously, actually that's a, another question that I'd like to ask. Would you would you bring the logbook back, and would you bring more structure back if you were going into a contest prep phase? Um, and would that would that be something that you'd really want to keep an eye on when it came to, when it comes down to sort of strength retention? And would how would you see strength retention working without any sort of log approach? I think I almost definitely would. I would probably bring it back just to keep myself extra accountable, especially in the later stages of prep when it gets really easy to play mental games with yourself and convince yourself that you're doing okay when you're not. So it just keeps you extra accountable. Um, but I am, I totally agree with everything that you just said. I think it definitely has merit, but it is in no way required. So I generally think that if you're the type of person who likes numbers and is motivated by seeing a, pro- a progression and that kind of thing, I would really encourage you to do it. Um, I encourage all of my clients to do it just because I want them to get the most out of their time working with me. Uh, and I think that that's a way to do it. But on the other hand, you have some people who, uh, get more out of training more so-called intuitively, uh, like I'm doing currently. And I think that as long as there's some sort of setup in place that ensures that there's some kind of progression happening, however that may be, uh, then you can, you can do it, a, a whatever way you please really. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think people will feel kind of relaxed in that environment because there's a lot of people yeah. that don't log and they're like, oh, should I be logging? Yeah. Should log? And I think there's a lot of pressure and yeah. a lot of the time people can benefit from just hearing someone say, you know, it's, it's actually okay not to log. And yeah, I think so. A lot so. of people have said it recently. So I guess, yeah. I guess that's refreshing. And I think at some point in my training career, I probably will not log sessions but as for right now, I don't, I don't, I just, I just think I'm, I'm really in love with logbing. Well, I, I just enjoy it. I just enjoy yeah. it. Like if I didn't yeah. enjoy training, I wouldn't train. So it's the right, same with right. the logbook. Yeah. Um, I had a question. So I've seen recently 
you spending a lot of time well not spending a lot of time but you've been to obviously BPAC's gym and spent mm. time with um Josh Vogel recently and obviously yep. they um their methods to training are um somewhat different to some people um in in the community I guess and what would be sort of your opinion on um their side of training when it comes to sort of more time and attention work mm. and have you seen sort of benefits in your own training that have cross transferred from as, as a result of being there with Josh and Ben etc and yeah that's I guess that's what I'm really interested in is what, right. what did you learn and what did you take home into your own training yeah well I should say first I haven't trained with Ben, ben even though yeah, yeah. Josh has but I've trained with Josh a number of times we just did a workout a couple days ago that I'm going to publish hopefully tomorrow, tomorrow the next day. Okay. Uh, so we did, we did another leg day. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's very focused on, you know, intention and activating and uh, ten, like time under tension, it seems. Um, and I think I've carried a lot away from it. Uh, but I still think that our go-to training styles are quite a bit different. Um, yeah. What I've taken away from it, though, is that there, I really have become convinced that there is merit in slowing down the movement a little bit, even if it means dropping back the weight a bit, okay. and really focusing on mind-muscle connection, uh, training with intent, especially with more of the isolation movements. Um, one area that we differ, I think, is the time under tension component. Uh, I don't think that they do a lot of, uh, and I, again, I'm not so familiar with Ben, but just based on my experience training with Josh, mm -hmm. uh, they tend to not lock out movements quite as much. They tend to tra train more in like active range of motion. So like they'll go... Even with say, squats, et cetera, leg press and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah with, okay. with pretty well everything um, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, they really try to keep that constant stimulus on the muscle. Uh, whereas I just, I, I don't, I can't say that it doesn't work. It, it certainly seems to, uh, at least for them. And it's a training style that's quite enjoyable. Like the burn and the pump is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, so I could see it potentially having some merit uh, in terms of like metabolic stress. And course, I think yeah. it's always a good idea to load the muscle in slightly different ways. Like this is kind of related to the old like muscle confusion thing, which has been sort of debunked, but yet it's still kind of a good idea to present a new stimulus to the body every now and then as it habituates. Right. Uh, so, um, I think like a controlled so, sort of muscle confusion variety, is like yeah. a little yeah. bit more, yeah, variety, exactly. Novelty, what have you. Um, so I've taken that away from it, but I, I don't think that there's really any reason to always train that way. Like I think that you can train through a full range of motion, have slight pauses between your reps to catch your breath or whatever. And provided that you're taking sets within a, you know, reasonably close limit of momentary muscular failure, then you're going to be activating a full spectrum of motor units anyway. And if it's activation that drives hypertrophy, then you should see similar levels of hypertrophy between someone who does it under constant tension and someone who maybe gets a couple extra reps because they pause for that second between sets or, yes. or whatever. I don't put a ton of stock in that. Uh, but yet, for all that, I do find it to be a killer way to get a really good pump. And it's a really fun way to train. I love training with Josh. And I always like put a quite a lot of weight in what they say because they've been very successful. And uh, you know, it's always, I think, smart to keep an open mind to different approaches, especially when it comes to training. Because yeah, the literature is good, but it's there's just so many holes in it that you have to take into account the so-called anecdotal evidence yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that a lot, and I think, like I said previously, I'm I'm moving over, I guess, to be I I like the guys that are really open-minded when it comes to the approach, and I guess I was I was really sort of interested when I saw your videos with Josh because you know I've seen Josh, I've followed Josh as well, and I knew that you'd have pretty different training approaches mm. so I was, I was really interested in it and it just it, it I, I agree with you I totally agree when it comes to just being open-minded to accepting a variety of approaches and you know you can quite easily get lost in one train of thought and mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. more people can benefit from just I guess opening their eyes to a variety of approaches and yeah just being chilled about that <laughs> yeah I think I think I think it was Albert Einstein but I'm not sure who uh said keep an open mind but not so open that your brain falls out that's mm -hmm. kind of what i try to do it's like i don't just keep my mind open to everything because then there'll just be so much bullshit coming in but if something makes sense at least theoretically it's like i can think of a reason why constant tension might be good um and it seems to have worked for this person uh i'm 
going to be open to it with a critical eye. I kind of like always keep a critical eye on everything, regardless of whether it's coming from peer reviewed literature or from some gym bro with a great physique. I always am skeptical. And so uh, as long as you have that general overarching mental framework, then uh, I think that keeping an open mind is the best way to keep yourself moving forward. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, so you've, you've balanced both bodybuilding and powerlifting in the past. Now, I know that a lot of people will put weight in having a squat and a deadlift and a bench and an OHP in a, in a program. Now, I'm specifically interested, and I think a lot of my listeners are as well, as to how you would or how you've seen best fitting a squat and a deadlift variation into a training protocol. Mm-hmm. And what have you seen in terms of, I guess, the the benefits of potentially focusing on one for a period of time rather than having both in the same training week. I'm just interested to see as to how you've done it in the past and whether there's any approaches that you've taken that you think, wow, like that worked really well. Like I've been able to progress both at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something anecdotally I've, I've struggled with as well, trying to, trying to do both at the same time. Right. Right. Um, so I think that within the context of a, bodybuilding like hybrid routine um say you were running a push pull legs we can just run with that uh one way to do it would be to do your your heavy squat earlier in the week uh so say you do your leg day uh put legs first um do your heavy squat and then do like a speed or like a technique deadlift so like a pause deadlift or a speed deadlift something like that um and then on the other day so on the other leg day four days later or whatever it is you do your heavy deadlift and then you do speed squats or pause squats or something like that okay. in that order. So you'd have like a heavy and then a light and you put them both on the leg day. Um, I found that to be better than say putting the deadlifts on the back day, even though I have set it up that way before, but I find it just tends to interfere with the squat performance more than if you cluster them together. Um, and you definitely want to stagger the heavy light. Um, so you're not just, you know, you wouldn't want to go heavy squat, heavy deadlift. You want to, oh, yeah. that it would be brutal, right? If you're putting them on the same day. Um, but I find that you just run into recovery issues if you if you set it up the other way, unless they're running more of a powerlifting style program, in which case you can you can stagger them a little bit more because they don't have all that assistant work. They don't need to do all the back volume and so on. So it's a little bit easier. No, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. In terms of leaving one, uh, I've done that. Uh, I've run a phase where I squat five days a week, or actually I think it was six days a week. Yeah, it was six days a week. Okay. Um, it was, so it was like this like DUP mesocycle um, and. I increased my squat like crazy, but I also increased my deadlift like crazy, even though I wasn't deadlifting the whole four or six weeks, whatever it was. Um, So I think that you can do it that way, but I wouldn't only deadlift and not squat. I think that it goes better the other way. So you you can squat a whole lot and you'll recover from it really well, but you won't recover from deadlifting a whole lot. I would recommend doing that more than twice a week. Even for advanced people, I rarely will program it three times a week yeah no i've i've had phases where i deadlift twice a week and i find the general fatigue just horrific Mm. i i I feel just generally like i deadlifted yesterday and i just like pretty much the whole of today i felt generally just fatigued Mm. and run down and i think that's something that people overlook is that that adverse effect on your cns and that recovery side of things and people maybe just don't have a, a gauge on that. I guess when they get into the gym, they're just like, oh, I'm tired. I don't like, but my back's not sore. My hamstring's not sore. And they yeah. get a squat yeah. and they wonder why they can't. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. And I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense when it comes to squatting more frequently than you would deadlift, but still deadlifting. I think mm-hmm. anecdotally as well, I've seen that work pretty well in programs. Like yeah. I can quite easily squat two times a week, but I wouldn't be able to deadlift any more than once i don't think oh really um Interesting. no I, I i i've i've had phases of deadlifting twice a week and they've taken so much away from my squats and like i said my other work that right right yeah i haven't been able to progress but when i've just focused on bringing one up and potentially deadlifting in another day during the week either mm-hmm. after a squat session uh like d- directly after a squat or sometimes the day after because I've found that sometimes I'm 
more fatigued the second day. My back's more fatigued the second day after a lower body workout as opposed to the first. And gotcha. I'm not sure if there's any anything to sort of rationalize that. But um, but in terms of recovery, I've found that, yeah, I think the, the, the first day is sometimes better just to get it in. In that case, I would probably at least do like a Romanian deadlift or something like that after the, the squat session just yes. to have a little bit more specificity toward, set towards the power lifts. But you can absolutely get away with deadlifting once a week um i would keep it a heavy session though yeah it makes a lot of sense um so one of my one of my questions for sort of long-term progression and i think you've touched on this kind of in other questions but in terms of days when you feel like on top of the world and everything's moving really really well if if you have days like that how beneficial do you see it as just taking that day as a day where you just go hard and you you really you really take advantage of that day or i guess i guess again it really requires context so it requires you know what what sort of split are you heading for are you are you having like a more powerlifting focus etc but Mm -hmm. as a bodybuilder what do you think is the benefit of grasping those days with both hands and really doing potentially more than you would normally do on a normal day and progressing more fast than you would normally on a normal day what do you think the benefits are of that i speaking from me personally i would just go hard like i i love to train hard and i like to i like to have fun when i train too like i legitimately like look forward to training every day it's like something that i love to do i'd love to go to the gym um, and I want to keep it that way. And if I feel like I'm always holding myself back or like, you know, even if it gets too regimented for me, uh, I'll find my training less enjoyable, at least at the moment. You've got There's a time phases like that when it's been too yeah. structured. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at the moment where I, like I, you know, like I said, I am focusing a lot more on, um, business things and I have to keep training sessions within a certain time frame, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But, uh, if I have my coach hat on, uh, I would say, you know, listen, listen to your coach on this one. Like if you have a little bit more juice in the tank, then it should just mean that you're able to handle more weight, but still hit the RPE as given in the program kind of thing and save it, save it for your last set. You know, like if, if you have, if you have this extra energy and you just want to go ham on your last set, then go for it. Right. I don't want to hold you back. But if it's just me in the gym and I'm running my own training, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold back. Hmm. no i i i do agree with that i think again like i said it requires some element of context so if you're i don't know sometimes you have days i know that and i don't know whether you can relate post contest i've had days where i feel like a million dollars because i've suddenly got more calories inside of Mm -hmm, me but mm -hmm. the weights that i think that i can potentially move when i feel like that Mm -hmm. will not move and you get under the under the idea that you know, suddenly you're going to gain all your strength back and that's right, not right. the case. So I think yep. obviously it requires context as to the situation and yep. what that individual is going through. So, but yeah, I would, I, I think I've taken advantage of the days where I feel like that and I've employed like AMRAP sets or slightly increasing the load more than I would do. Mm-hmm. But I have potentially found some sort of adverse effects later on as to whether that would maybe lead me to accumulating more fatigue than I'm normally used to. So potentially mm-hmm. take away from another session. Um, but yeah, I guess that's probably a thing that I would ask in terms of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, my final question, Jeff, not to hold you for too long, um, is really <laughs> what, what have you seen when, because obviously you've worked with a lot of people online, um, and coaching when what have you seen in terms of linear progression with certain individuals as in terms of constantly progressing lifts and really packing on a lot of tissue have you seen sort of any characteristic traits that these individuals have potentially i know that you'll obviously try to develop somewhat of a personal feel with individuals so you might get to know sort of what they're like potentially what jobs they do etc and Mm. have you have you just seen any characteristics that where people just build a lot of muscle and seem to progress their lifts really well is there anything that you've seen? Any trends? Yeah, uh, there's Any definitely well? there's definitely different. I would have to think about uh, correlations between individuals, but sure. there, there's no doubt 
massive differences in terms of response to a given program. And this has been substantiated in the literature where there have been like a ton of different studies where they'll put two groups on the exact same training program and you'll see that they're sorted by like responder and non-responder groups. You'll see massive differences in how much muscle they gain in the same amount of time on the same program, presumably similar diets. Um, and so there's a huge genetic component to all of this. And, um, one, one paper, uh, said that genetic differences account for 50 to 80% of differences in muscularity, uh, from, from twin studies. So it's, the differences in muscularity can be like, you, you know, you see some guys, they haven't lifted at all and they're still, they just look like a jacked guy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Not be athletic, but they're just jacked. Um, and so genetics can, like I said, can account for 50 to 80% of those differences. Uh, so, and then further, you also see differences in satellite cell activation. So satellite cells are kind of like the cells that form new muscle cells or they repair the old muscle cells. Um, those are activated to a very high degree in a very, in a small subset of the population. Um, so you have people categorized in these studies as being non-responders. So they just basically don't hypertrophy, uh, mild responders and then extreme responders. And you only see satellite cell activation to an appreciable degree in the extreme responder group. And I've just noticed that with my clients, it's like some people can do all the right things with their training and diet. Um, they just won't get the results that some guys will, regardless of time or, you know, all the other variables. So there is a huge genetic component. And whenever I say that, it almost sounds discouraging, especially if you're the type of person who isn't genetically endowed, you know, muscle building abilities. But um, I think it's more realistic and it allows people to set goals that are based on their current starting place, not where they want to be or where someone else is. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to only, you know, compare your progress to your own starting place, not someone else's uh, current place or what have you. Um, So yeah, that's something that I've noticed. But in terms of trends, I guess the only one that I can really think of would be generally people who were athletes tend to respond really well to training. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than that, it, it, I don't notice any like racial differences really. Um, black guys are generally more muscular in my experience, but, um, it's, it's kind of tough to say cause I've worked with some, there's some white guys who are just like absolute mass monsters too. And it goes the other way too. It goes with genetics and, or with genetics, uh, with, uh, body fat and body fat distribution. Uh-huh. It's so genetically regulated. Like I'll have some people diet so hard to get lean while others just maintain it in their off season without tracking quite easily. Uh, so a lot of it is really, really predetermined at birth and there's not a whole lot you can do it, but, uh, you can do about it, but, um, you can always optimize what it is, the, what hand it is that you were given. Right. But you just need to be realistic about what you can expect, I guess. Yeah. I've, I've to- I can totally agree with you on the sort of the body fat and the contest prep side of things. <laughs> I've seen, you know, I've seen people, yeah, I've seen people like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be absolutely fine, no issues. And they'll be extremely lean. Whereas, you know, I'd get to that point, that condi- that level of conditioning and would be feeling like complete shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I guess, a lot of people... Yeah, I think I- I'd agree with you as well when it comes to like setting that barrier. Not setting the barrier, but setting the bar when it comes to your own goals and what you can yeah. achieve. Um, I think, again, like potentially people people then almost take that too literally and then start setting really low ceilings for themselves, yeah. which is really yeah. unfortunate. And, yeah. you know, they'll look at, you know, potentially physiques like yours and other pro-natural bodybuilders and be like, oh, I'm never going to be part of, mm. you know, the genetic elites. But right, there's, plenty, right, right. there's plenty of pro-bodybuilders, right, that haven't been dealt a, right, a brilliant card, correct? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's definitely the case. And um, there's some literature on this, and off the top of my head I won't remember, but it has something to do with the fact that there, there are two different alleles, and one can be one or both can be inherited. And when you look at elite level sprinters, so many of them have both alleles. But 
a lot of the ones who are at the very top only have one allele, right? Like they only have one copy of that chroma, that sprinter chromosome or what have you. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sure I got the details wrong here, but the idea is that you can outwork your genetic limitation or outsmart it or whatever. So you can become the absolute best version of yourself, but you're never going to look exactly like me unless you have my height and bone structure and muscle insertions and all these things. So you have to look at your goals within the context of your starting place, right? That's, that's mostly why I harp on the genetic thing and especially lately. And then also I think that in light of the massive contribution of genetics and just, you know, training consistently and with enough effort, a lot of those finer details that get a lot of attention, especially in the science community and mm-hmm. science fitness community, um, really just comparatively just matter so much less. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that it just, I think it needs a little bit more attention maybe like, uh, for people to realize like this will work, but it's going to work within the confines of your genetic potential. Yeah, no, right? totally agree. And yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> those are some really good points that I've never heard before when it comes to, you know, seeing traits in between people. And it's, it's almost nice that you, sorry, go ahead, Jeff, you were going to say something. I was going to say, when you mentioned traits, I just thought there's like, see, I feel like a lot of research is starting to focus more so on genetics now and it's starting to inform us more. There's a study published late last year where they looked at different genotypes. Um, so basically like what your DNA has written in it. And I I don't know the details because I haven't read the whole study, but the basic idea was that based on a given genotype, so what genes you have and what what genes are being expressed, you can structure your training to match that. And so you know how some people will be like, uh, I just really respond well to high reps, right? And then you'll have the pushback from others being like, Oh, but we know that, you know, tension is optimized in this rep range. So you're probably not best to train only in higher reps. But based on what we are learning about genetics, it could very well be the case that some people just might respond better to certain rep ranges or lower rep ranges or whatever. So until that data becomes available and we can actually, you know, test our own genomes to see what would be most optimal for us, I think it's smart to just pay attention to what is working for you and actually put some stock in it. Like, don't just think like this study, which was conducted on, I don't know, 30 people and then averages were taken from that. Really think of yourself as an individual data point and figure out what it is that works for you in an unbiased way. And you look at it with a critical eye and consider all the other factors that are going into it. It's probably a better way to figure out, you know, what is your best approach. (laughs) That's really interesting because that almost seems to me as like, taking science with an anecdotal approach like if we were able to have that gene type thing that would be taking science but with an anecdotal approach to it right 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 and that's going to really create the the most power i guess when it comes to developing a physique or losing fat etc um so i think that's really awesome i think people will take home a lot from that and again have more clarity and have more comfort in just doing a lot that feels right for them and again that that comes back to the bare basics of of building a training program it's like if you're if adherence is there and they're enjoying it and they're doing stuff they like then they're going to make like decent progress anyway mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know i guess that comes back to the start of things um but yeah awesome jeff i would like to really really thank you for your time and uh coming on the podcast i'm sure a lot of people will love this and yeah a lot of people follow you and really really like your stuff so please keep it up um i had one more question this is kind of personal <laughs> in terms of i i i just i i'm intrigued to follow you and follow your progress so when can we expect to sort of get get see you back on stage as a as a, as a bodybuilder have you got any plans to step on stage and um, potentially you know why why not etc I'm I'm definitely taking a hiatus for this year. Uh, I found actually when you asked me earlier when my best times of progress were, yeah. I feel like I'm almost in one now. I feel like my physique is really taking on a look that it didn't have before. Like it's it's hardening, muscle maturity is starting to kick in, whatever that means. Um, but I'm liking what I'm seeing in terms of my own physique development, and probably not coincidentally, it's also 
one of the longest times I've taken off from the stage. I took all of 2016 off and I'm also planning to take all of 2017 off as of right now. Um, so I'm really going to focus on growing, focus on some business related stuff. Um, and then the tentative plan is to come back in 2018 and, and compete. Uh, so we'll see, but, uh, as a natural, you know, you've got to give the muscles time to cook. So that's what I'm doing. Absolutely. Is your, and one more question, is your goal to, you know, compete on, uh, I guess, the WNBF world stage and compete against the best of the best. Has that always been your goal as a competitive bodybuilder? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I've taken some interest in the classic physique division, so I'm curious to see how that will develop over the next year. Uh, for my height, especially with the new muscle that I have on, I'd say I'm pretty close to the top end of the weight cap or whatever they have there. Okay. And I think that my physique would probably do well, especially I've made some arm gains uh, over the last couple of years. So I feel like I, I could do that. Um, so we'll see. I probably won't jump ship with the WNBF. I'd still have my ties there. They're a great organization. And um, I'd love to compete on the world stage, and I have no doubt that I will. Um, but whether or not I'll try out the classic physique thing is will remain to be seen. We'll see. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. awesome news. Lots to lots of stuff to, I guess, look forward to, and plenty more content coming from you, I'm sure. Um, yeah, man. But yeah, thanks again very much, Jeff. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, again, like I said, listeners will love this. Um, but if you have watched this and you do enjoy it, uh, please give us a like on YouTube. Comment below with any sort of questions that you perhaps have on any of the topics that have been raised and you know share it around if you feel like someone else can benefit from this uh, and again i'd like to thank people that did as a result of me asking for it last time uh, review the podcast i really appreciate it and it always helps um, the growth and obviously helps me get more awesome people very much like jeff on the podcast uh, for future episodes but thanks again jeff and uh yeah i wish you all the best for for the future mate Thank you, man. It was a real pleasure to be here. Great questions. No I enjoyed the discussion a lot.